Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Dr. William H. Turner, Bill Turner to his friends, the fifth of 10 children, was born in 1946 in the coal town of Lynch, Kentucky in Harlan County. His grandfather's father, four uncles and older brother were coal miners. Bill has spent his professional career studying and working on behalf of marginalized communities, helping them create opportunities in the larger world while not abandoning their important cultural ties. He is best known for his groundbreaking research on African-American communities in Appalachia. His 2021 book, The Harlan Renaissance, Stories of Black Life in Appalachian Coal Towns, won last year's Distinguished Weatherford Award for nonfiction. One of the judges for the prestigious award said this, the Harlan Renaissance is an invaluable piece of Black Appalachian history and should be celebrated as such. William H. Turner weaves together years of historical research and a personal family history and narrative that is full of rich sociological analysis and detailed memories. It's an honor to have Bill Turner on our podcast today. Bill from Houston, Texas, welcome. Uh, thank you so much, Mr. Good Goodman, and it's good to be with you. Uh, as you know, we've known each other for a long, long time, and uh, I'm just honored to be on your show. Well, thank you, sir, for those uh, kind comments. Bill, it, it honestly, um, it seems like you started making notes on this book when you were born, all the way through your growing up period, until the final chapter, you were making little notes. Uh, in order to put together Harlan Renaissance. Tell me about the, the crafting of this lifelong work. Uh, it certainly wasn't intentional. Uh, a, a key and well-known aspect of culture in the mountains of the South is uh, the oral tradition, uh, uh, storytelling. Uh, my, my muse, uh, roots author Alex Haley, as you may recall, when he answered this, this very question, he said something to the effect that, uh, you know, absent all the distractions we have in the current times, uh, in my own life uh, in the 40s, I was born in the mid 40s. So through the mid 60s, when I left home, uh, we didn't have a television until I was in the 10th grade. Uh, we didn't have an indoor toilet until I was in the 10th grade. So you tended to sit around on the porch with your grandmama and your brothers and your sisters. And we uh, didn't have a television. Uh, uh, the only radio station was down in Cumberland. And at night you could listen to WLAC out of Nashville, that 50,000 watt clear channel station that tied us to the rest of the world. So me and my brothers and sisters, we spent a lot of time talking and uh, uh, it wasn't uncommon to hear somebody say, shut up while grown folks are talking, boy. And so you'd find yourself being forced to listen. And uh, in the best possible way, I guess, uh, I listened a lot. 
my my father, uh, I think, intentionally uh, uh, would take me everywhere he went. Uh, when I was five, I went hunting and fishing uh, with him and his buddies down to Lake in Tennessee and rivers in you know Eastern Kentucky and rabbit hunting and squirrel hunting and sitting around in the dark, uh, you know, waiting for something to happen. Uh, when people would go out to shoot a coon at two o'clock in the morning. Uh, and so that isolation in the mountains of the South in that era uh, had its its value. And so uh, I was from around a talkative bunch of Southerners, particularly African-Americans who had their roots in rural Alabama. 90% of the people, my grandparents' generation came out of the Black Belt South primarily Alabama, down around Inslee and Birmingham and Tuskegee and Talladega and Tougaloo uh, and all of those places. And they came through the Cumberland Gap in that migration and they just were simple people who talked the talk a lot. And so I did keep notes on paper uh, uh, starting when I became a college student in 1965. Uh, I have a lot of notes. Uh, and sometimes the notes are just uh, one or two words. And, and I continue to keep my notes on a paper calendar. I have these Google calendars, but it really helps me if I write something down in that little small spot on May 13th, Bill Goodman. And that's, that's part of what has been a habit for me over the years. Bill, some of the reviewers of, um, of the book uh, uh, call it an intimate remembrance of kinship and community in Eastern Kentucky's cold towns, um, an intimate remembrance is at the, the final publication of, of the book. Is that what you wanted it to be? Yes, I did. Uh, I have uh, a memory that's vivid of, uh, uh, I mentioned him earlier, of Alex Haley's reaction uh, to a book. Uh, I have it here on my shelf somewhere if I can find it. I don't see it right now, but in 1985, uh, going back even a little earlier than that, I got a grant from the Kentucky All History Commission, a lady named Kim Lady, I think her name was, it seems like, and the Kentucky Humanities Council gave me some money uh, in 1977. And, you know, I started a little newspaper with then a professor, my professor as an undergraduate named John Stevenson, John taught me at the University of Kentucky in 1966. Uh, and John was saying to me, you know, you're the only black person that I met from that part of the country. That's pretty unique. You ought to pursue, you know, this line of studies for your doctoral work. But, you know, in terms of, of, of the, the work itself, I wrote this book called Blacks in Appalachia, which was an anthology, uh, part of my pursuing tenure at the University of Kentucky. And we pulled together in this anthology uh, a lot of scholarly writing about Blacks in Appalachia. That was the title of the book, published in 1985 by the University Press of Kentucky. Uh, and when I uh, proudly handed it to Alex Haley as though it was uh, the winning basketball from the NBA title, I handed it to Alex, look at my book. And he sat there over a glass of Jack Daniels and uh, he thumbed through it and he said to me, you know something, Turner? 
I hope you don't ever write any more BS like this. <laughs> and it really crushed me because uh, he said, man, nobody's going to read this but a bunch of folks up in some ivory tower somewhere, some other scholars. If you're going to write something about your people, write something that an everyday coal miner who didn't go to Center College or Harvard somewhere, write something your mama would like. My mama went to the 10th grade. My father went to the third grade. And he said, write in a, in a style that they can feel it and they can see it and they can, they can picture your mama's kitchen when you write about it. And uh, they can see those old black men sitting under a tree playing dominoes on the 4th of July listening to Joe Nupsoff call a Cincinnati Red Legs baseball game and let them taste that Hudipole beer that they used to drink back on the side of the street. And, and, and that was a difficult thing to do because uh, the downside of being trained at a doctoral level in the social sciences is that you're literally required to write the way these basically old white males like to read. And if they didn't like it, you wouldn't get your dissertation passed, nor would you get certainly published, and nor would you get tenure. And so, you know, you're so hyped up to say, man, by 35, I got to have my tenure. And by 45, I want to be a full professor. So I got to write like these guys like. And uh, these guys don't like uh, cuss words. And these guys don't like direct references to sexual, uh, the life of, you know, and, and they certainly don't like the black dialect of Paul Lawrence Dunbar and D's and D's and days. And the way my grandfather would say uh, certain axiomatic statements uh, certain little little words they would use. And uh, I'm so glad that I, I, I literally have a glossary of such terms. And once again, as you know, the Appalachian culture has a unique language. It has a unique dialect. There are unique accents. There are unique rhythms. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so uh, I just couldn't talk about a certain pie my grandma cooked I wanted to write so you would taste that pie. And if I was successful one or two times in those 356 pages to do that, uh, I feel good about that because that was the trick. And I'm trying to work on something else along those lines to remove even more of the jargon of sociology and anthropology from my next work. And uh, I know it sounds odd to say I'm working on another book and I'm 76 years old, but I'm going to give it a shot. Well, who says that uh, age uh, is the judge of one's writing ability? Let's just put that aside right now. But you, you do such a wonderful job, and we, we'll get into some of those uh, axioms. And uh, there, I, 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 honestly, I just read one this morning about the, oh, yeah, <laughs> um, it was uh, something uh, as bad as a hair and a biscuit. Uh, oh, and the other one was, I've, I, I have the other one written down about the kick of a, a mule, an Alabama mule, but we'll, we'll get to those in a few minutes. And I also want to return and, and talk, about your, uh, talk about your relationship with, with Alex Haley uh, some. But let's, let's deal with and, and, um, and then move on. Uh, because it, it seems like to me in reading this, one of the themes, just one of the themes of a Harlan Renaissance is that 
And I want to just ask you this question. Why do so many people, why did so many people in, in the world, in the United States, in Kentucky, think and still think that there were no blacks in Appalachia? Yeah, I have a chapter dedicated to that uh, insofar as um, uh, uh, the preeminent poet laureate, Mr. Frank Walker, came up with that catchy term that seemed to introduce everybody to Blacks in Appalachia 30 years ago when he came up with Appalachia. And I looked him right in the face and said, Frank, what are you talking about? You mean to tell me you read in a dictionary that there were no black, that there were only whites in Appalachia. Uh, that reminded me of a, of a story of miscommunication between a man who was a portraitist, one of the best painters in the region. And this beautiful woman from a prominent family came to his studio and said, uh, 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 Mr. Jones, I want you to paint my portrait like you did my grandmother. And he said, oh yeah, baby, I've known your folks. Oh yeah, for years I've known your people. He was an African-American man. And she said, but Mr. Jones, I want something special. I want you to paint me in the nude. And he held his head back and said, oh my God, now child, wait a minute, what you talking about? And so it went back and forth and she pulled out five $100 bills uh, and put him in front of his face and says, would you paint my picture in the nude for $500? He usually only got $50. And so he said, okay, I'll tell you what, I will paint your portrait in the nude, but under one condition, I'm gonna keep my socks on so I have something to wipe my brushes with. The <laughs> 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 ultimate miscommunication. <laughs> so the, the notion that African-Americans did not exist in Appalachia, did not live in Appalachia, uh, uh, you know, says to me a lot about the current debate we have been all together uh, in this country right now in school board meetings where people are saying, leave that out of the books. We don't want to burden our children with that conversation. 1619 Project is a red herring. It's a flag for everybody. So in a way, to, to perpetrate a falsehood is the one of the easiest thing in the world. It is much more difficult to tell the truth. Uh, and so in a sense, uh, 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 some of these ideas about there were no blacks in Appalachia uh, as a perception of people, it's almost like what uh, this wonderful term that has come into the vocabulary, at least my vocabulary, uh, this word gaslighting. Uh, I understand that gaslighting means that uh, uh, you manipulate someone into questioning their own identity, their own sanity. So when I started reading about there are no blacks in Appalachia, uh, or when I came to the University of Kentucky in 1966, and after walking around me in a circle to make sure I didn't have a tail, uh, <laughs> you know, there were people who were saying, I didn't know there were any black people in Harlan County, in Pike County, in Letcher County, in uh, 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 Floyd County, in Bell County. And I was saying, you know, I hate to disappoint you guys, but I grew up in Lynch, Kentucky, born in the mid forties, 
at which time there were 12,000 or so people in that little coal town, which incidentally was the largest coal town in the world. It had the largest production capacity of any coal town, even in South Africa or China, in Harlan County. There were 38 different nationalities in that little town. Uh, I grew up with people named Yablonsky and Vecini and Caruso and Fartelli and Caudill and Blevins and Miss Willie May from Jasper, Alabama. Now, my point is I grew up in a very cosmopolitan place. I smelled all kinds of food from Czechoslovakia, from Poland, from Italy, you know, uh, and I heard accents from all over Ukraine, Eastern Europe, Czechoslovakia, the Carpathian Mountains. They had all come over the Alleghenies from uh, Ellis Island, you know, and then Black people come up from the South and they all met in Harlan County. And it was a fascinating place. And then I get to Lexington in 1966 and people are telling me I was from an isolated backwards place and Lexington, to me, was a plantation town. In you uh, even got to a point where people would ask you about where you're from, and you would say, just to avoid the conversation, you'd say, I'm because, from New Jersey. Yeah, because I would go to New Jersey in the summer when I was a teenager. You know, we'd go up there, quote, to work for the summer. Uh, our grandmama, who was a bootlegger, was smart enough to save some of her money and send it up to New Jersey to one of her daughters, my older aunt, who bought a house in Jersey. And so uh, they also, going back to gaslighting, uh, when I got to Lexington and somebody from Louisville, primarily, or from Cincinnati area, those Northern Kentucky elites, you might call them, they looked down on Appalachian white people so much. I heard folks in that dorm I lived in called Hagen Hall out on Rose Street. And they would talk about whites and hazard. And I was like, my God. If that's what they think about the white people in Harlan County, I wonder what they think about me, you know? And so uh, it was almost like whites in the mountains of the South had been othered so bad with the Jethro, the Ellie Mae, the, the deliverance stereotype, the, the Beverly Hillbillies, the, the yokel yokels of, uh, you know, Andy Griffin fame, so much so that we questioned whether we were smart as those kids from Henry Clay High School. You know, I'm 19 years old, I'm 18 years old. And nobody had talked about appreciating the poetry and the writing that had come out of uh, Jesse Stewart uh, and the writers. Kentucky's had a wonderful history of writers, many of whom were from Eastern Kentucky. So that uh, uh, just to, for people not to bore me with their uh, questions, which were sometimes rife with uh, uh, looking down their noses, uh, I tended to, to not even want to say my daddy is a coal miner. I can't yeah. say it. I wish I want to say my daddy is uh, so-and-so. Yet you did write, though, um, in, in the introduction of, of your book, Harlan Renaissance, I would not have chosen to be born in Harlan County, Kentucky, a year after World War II ended. Well, why did you write that? Because that was a flippant remark. You know, it's kind of like, gee, you know, if I could have uh, if I could have chosen more consciously, what kind of family would have been ideal to be from? What's the best place? You know, certain zip codes produce certain outcomes. And so I think many people, if you could choose your parents, I wonder if people would choose parents that had graduate degrees from Princeton. Uh, would they choose parents who lived in Palo Alto? 
uh, would they choose parents from here? And who, what kind of friends would they have chosen? What environment, what kind of conditions, if you could do that yourself? And so it was just kind of a, a flipping twist of a phrase. It says, Gee, man, if I had known people thought about Harlan County the way they think about Harlan County, I would never want to be born there. I would have been able to say, oh, no, I grew up in Cambridge. You know, <laughs> well, Bill, so, you, you started talking about Lynch and, and, and growing up there and and your your father being uh, in the coal mine. And uh, give us a paint us a picture of of Lynch, Kentucky uh, in uh, your growing up period, born in 1946. Let's just fast forward to the time you maybe started school. You're in the it's in the 50s now. Uh, what uh, I, I, there's a wonderful picture of the. In the book, uh, uh, an aerial or from from a hilltop uh, mm -hmm. overlooking the the town with a big, huge structure and uh, uh, right. pe people that he, that travel and and everyone should, by the way, uh, go to Lynch, uh, yeah. go to go to Benham, and uh, and then read your book about the way that town was when you were growing up. Part of what I tried to do with the title itself. Uh, many people are and more should be familiar with the golden era of black life and culture in America. It was called the Harlem, H-A-R-L-E-M, uh, a section of Manhattan in New York City, when thousands and thousands and thousands of African-Americans migrated in the early 1900s, between then and the Depression, and they migrated from up the East Coast, from Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Maryland, Virginia, and they went right up what is now the I-95 corridor, and they went into Baltimore, they went into Washington, but the ultimate spot was a cotton club in New York City in what you call Harlem. Ground zero of black life in America was in the 1920s and 30s in Harlem when you had what they call the the, the flowering, the first time since enslavement when Blacks were just having a ball. They had, uh, they were freed from the, the restrictions of racial segregation and oppression and discrimination and lynching in the South. And they went to New York City. And you can see the pictures everywhere, uh, poets and musicians and writers and scholars and the Schomburg collection and the parades up and down 125th Street in New York City. Well, we also knew that there was a similar migration pattern out of central Alabama that came up through Northeast Alabama over around Gadsden and they came into Chattanooga and right on up what we call Interstate 75 right now into the Cumberland Gap where Virginia and Kentucky and Tennessee come together down around Middlesbrough. And they continued into the mountains of the South, getting these coal jobs. Just as other Blacks in New York and Chicago and those other influences of that migration in that period went to get industrial jobs that were tied to the production of World War I. And so there was our grandparents coming into the mountains of the South in the counties that we're talking about in East Kentucky. And so we knew that Lynch was the blackest town for miles around. Proportionally, Lynch had a greater percentage of African-Americans 
than did Lexington and Louisville and Bowling Green and all those other places. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, I, I, I told people when I came to UK in 1966, because I was 20 when I left home, I went to community college for my first two years in Cumberland. And I told people in Lexington, I've never seen this many white people at one time in my life. Because I, a half, a fourth of the people in my hometown were black. And then another fourth were European, Eastern European migrants, you know. And then we had some that were called Melungeons that were just kind of an admixture of everybody, the Portuguese and the Spaniards and whites and Africans. And so uh, that was why I called it the Harlem Renaissance, because I grew up in a, in a cacophony of all these different racial and ethnic groups. We had these excellent schools because United States Steel, which owned our town, was the Amazon of the day. It was the most highly capitalized company in the world, United States Steel. They owned our town. They also owned Birmingham, Alabama. They also owned Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They also owned Gary, Indiana. They were horizontal, I'm sorry, they were a vertically integrated company that went all the way from getting the coal to making a, 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 a train. And they, they owned the steel mills from Cleveland to Chicago, that one company. And we lived right in the midst of it. And uh, uh, the people out of Pittsburgh built this humongous hotel that looked like, that looked like uh, uh, that big place down in Nashville uh, where you go to. Opryland. Opryland, yeah. They had, I mean, can you imagine a hotel with 150 rooms in it in Harlan County in 1920? Uh, yeah. And so we had we had the equivalent of of, 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 a, of a mall, a store that you could buy everything from a safety pin to a car in one store called the big store. It was a company store. The company was so omnipotent and so powerful, they even had been given the right by the federal government to print their own money. It was called script. So they wouldn't pay dad and them in dollars. They would pay them in money that could only be spent in their stores. And then they would charge more in their stores than you could go to Harlan and buy stuff. So we lived in a gated community. I lived in a gated community, man. Uh, about five miles from where I live here in Texas, in Houston, is one of the most elegant and uh, elite gated communities in America. It's called the Woodlands. You know, and there's these gated $5 million houses. Well, at a time in the 19, 1920, you couldn't get into Lynch unless you stopped at a gate where the town police, but well, not the town police, the company security guards would say, what's your business here? What do you want here? And if you couldn't say you live here or you knew somebody there, you'd have to turn around and go back to Cumberland. So it was a good life for you growing up yes, in, in yes, Lynch. Yes, yes. And, I and never, you, went... I, you know, Bill, in terms of all those stereotypes about how poor we were uh, and we didn't have any shoes, and the stereotype that they thought when they saw me in Lexington that I had not read the Rubiyat of Omar Khayyam when I was in the ninth grade. You know, we had gone, we had been educated by black teachers that the company bought in from Spellman and Howard and Fisk and Kentucky State particularly was, uh, was not like it is today, for example. I mean, that was where all black people went to college and we had the best teachers that U.S. still would say, we got the best teachers that money could buy. And they did that at the Lynch White School and at the Lynch Black School. And so uh, I think that I, I just kind of thought everybody in the world lived such a follow knows best Saturday evening post uh, community. 
I mean, I wasn't discounting the fact that there were colored-only and white-only signs around. Uh, we weren't too far from Corbin, Kentucky, for example. Uh, you know, and it had its own tussle, Oklahoma, uh, get them out of town, ethnic cleansing Monday in 1921, I think it was. Uh, and so uh, despite its warts and wrinkles, uh, for a man who went to the third grade, my father kept the job for 47 years and he was able to raise 10 children, you know, and now uh, I think he would be happy to walk back up on his porch and see some of his grandsons who graduated from Stanford and Columbia. Yeah. I know you. Well, Bill, um, it, it's a wonderful, marvelous story. And I want to tell our listeners uh, to the Think Humanities podcast that this is uh, part one uh, we're going to, uh, th there's so much uh, involved in this, we're going to uh, to have a part two, but we're not finished with part one yet. And uh, uh, so we're going to come back and I'm going to ask you about United States Steel, and then we're going to talk about uh, Alex Haley, and, and we're going to talk about some other things that are in uh, your wonderful book. Uh, Bill Turner, uh, the distinguished uh, scholar and, and lecturer and researcher and and uh, writer uh, is our guest today. And we're going to hear more from Bill right after we hear from our underwriter for this podcast, our great friends at Spalding University. Spalding University's low residency MFA in creative writing offers outstanding instruction in a supportive literary community. Study across genres, explore the interrelatedness of the arts, travel to Paris next summer for short-term study abroad or stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies on campus. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Bill, in, in painting that picture of your growing up in, in Lynch, uh, one of the things I think we have to conclude this portion of our discussion with is what happened to United States Steel and what happened to Lynch and, and at, at what time did that occur? Okay. Um, the, um, the coal industry, as you know, uh, a few years ago, I can remember so well driving through, uh, Keystone, West Virginia, uh, the very heart of what they call the Pocahontas coal fields of West Virginia. And West Virginia had twice as much coal capacity as Kentucky uh, as a whole. Uh, it was 2009, I was in Keystone, West Virginia, and I saw a sign the size of a, oh, your normal uh, huge billboard, and it says, Obama hates coal. Uh, we are friends of coal. And I said, isn't that interesting? Because uh, there was this idea that coal began to decline in the mid-2000s, in the mid-aughts, in, in, you know, in the 20, in 21st century. Many people think that the decline of coal, uh, and particularly the, the decline of coal miners, started in the 21st century. Well, actually, the decline of coal miners started when I was born. It started in the mid-40s with the introduction of labor-saving devices that replaced coal miners. Uh, 
interestingly enough, one of the first machines that took the hammers and the sledgehammers and the dynamite and the way that people loaded coal manually, when it moved to, they called it a joy loader. What a joy. This is a machine that loaded coal like that. Uh, that didn't mean so much as a joy thing to many coal miners because one of the things, Bill, that I can remember as though it happened this morning is that the little First Baptist Church, which I attended, when you went in there every Sunday, right in that little small vestibule, was the names of every member of the church, the families, the Turners, the Goodmans, the Browns, the Bustles, the whomever. And there were these columns that indicated how much money they gave last week. You know, that it would be $2 next to dad's name every Sunday. And they changed that thing every month. They pulled it down and put the next month up. And I began to notice clearly, I was like, Daddy, why did they scratch over Mr. Hickman's name? And Daddy would say, oh, he got laid off, boy. They moved to Chicago. I said, oh, wow. You know, and I watched that in real time as the names were scratched off because the family's daddy had been unemployed as a result of mechanization. So that, for example, uh, my father, after a lawsuit filed through the Kentucky Commission on Human Rights in 1969 and 70, and I had worked for Galen Martin uh, when I got out of UK in 1968, and I brought that to the attention of my father and some men in Lynch, and they sued the company. Everybody thought they'd lost their minds, but they won that suit. And dad subsequently got a job running what was called a continuous miner. And that's, that's no redundant statement because this machine is that it'll run 24 hours a day, buddy, and it never gets tired, and it won't go on strike, and it never needs any water, and the daggone <laughs> thing goes and goes and goes, and it'll eat through the mouth like a, like a hot knife and some butter. And he said, and they now pay me $122 a day to run this damn thing. You know something, buddy? I was used to make $122 a month. He said, but this is real nice that we're making that money, but this daggone machine here put 300 boys out of work. So our town went from 12,000 people, just like this, accordion fashion, uh, down to now, uh, there are more people on the block I live than there are living in Lynch today. Last time I looked last summer, it was 510 people in the city of Lynch. Uh, there's not a coal mine in Lynch, Kentucky for the last 30 years, neither in Benham. And as you know, the coal mining is now spread to something called mountaintop removal, where if you look at the mountain like a 6,000-foot layered cake and the layers, the chocolate in the layers is the coal, and they start at the top and they work down to each layer, and the cake that's on top of each layer of dark coal, they just throw it down in the valley, and they get the coal, and they go to the next level and the next level. So they're literally lowering the mountains of Metro County and Pike County and Harlan County and Bell County. Uh, and so that's the progress of coal. Uh, so the coal did not decline with Barack Obama becoming the president. Coal declined because of environmental concerns that people have. Coal declined because natural gas and other fossil fuels are cheaper and have less deleterious effect on the environment. And coal declined, as I said a moment ago, uh, by virtue of the fact that United States still perfected research and development. And so that every ton of coal they mined, they came up with a new machine in the next five years. And it was cheaper to get it off the top of mountains than it oh, was to get yes. it underground, too. That yeah. was the other uh, big, big factor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Bill, 
with mountaintop removal, all you need is a few guys and some dynamite in a truck. Yeah. And it's still going on, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, let's end up this first uh, segment of our two-part uh, discussion with uh, Dr. William H. Turner. Bill Turner is with us in his uh, book, uh, which came out last year, but is still available. Uh, it, it is a wonderful read. It's such a rich uh, history of Eastern Kentucky and, frankly, beyond uh Eastern Kentucky to other parts of uh, the world. And, and uh, it, it's just, uh, we're going to talk about as many of these stories as we can, but let's end up this, um, this segment of our discussion, Bill, and then uh, invite people to join us next week for our continuation. Um, I, I read that, um, uh, and you, you write that, that your encouragement for writing uh, the book, as you mentioned earlier, came from your, your friend, your close friend, Alex Haley, the author of the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, book, Roots, uh, that was turned into that uh, miniseries that uh, the, the world saw by, uh, on ABC in the 70s. You served as a, I, I believe, a, a research associate for him uh, uh, during his life, and and you were a close friend for many years. And he said once uh, about you, uh, Bill Bill Turner knows more about black people in the mountains of the South than anyone in the world. What a what a statement from a, a grand person like Alex Haley. And you know, I think a lot of people. I have to include myself in this. I admired Alex Haley. And then there was a time when Roots was heralded and celebrated. And then then it then it was gone off television. And then and and Alex uh, lived a long life after that time. And you were you were there with him, uh, went to parties uh, uh, that he had on his uh, uh, farm, his land there in East Tennessee. Talk a little bit about Alex Haley and, and your friendship with him. Uh, it was it was a dear blessing uh, uh, that night. I remember our phone rang, and my wife hollered downstairs. I was in my study, and she said, "Bill, there's somebody on the phone who says his name is Alex Haley. You believe that?" And I got the phone, and I knew immediately that's who it was because I had watched him, uh, I had listened to him, I listened to interviews, so I knew it was him immediately, and. Uh, he said, I learned about you and where you're from and what you do through my friend, John Stevenson. Uh, at the time, uh, Alex had just moved to the area just north of Knoxville uh, in uh, Clinton, Tennessee. Uh, uh, and, and Alex uh, joined with a famous man who wasn't always famous, but he came up with the Museum of Appalachia, uh, John Rice Irvin. They were very good friends, 20 miles north of Knoxville in Norris, Tennessee, rather. And uh, Alex said to me he wanted to meet me because he was interested in doing some writing about Blacks in the mountains of the South. And I had published this book. And he said, uh, can you come and talk to me sometime? And uh, without stumbling, I said, would tomorrow be too quick? <laughs> and so within six or eight hours, I was in Knoxville. I was at Alex's farm. Uh, you know, right after daybreak the next morning. Uh, and uh, we uh, stayed uh, friends, as it were, for a decade uh, after that meeting. And he was a wonderful man. And what started me down this road uh, is he took me with him to meet John Rice Irving at the museum. And I don't know if you've ever been there, 
but it is the most Smithsonian-like institution that has preserved material artifacts uh, from houses to barns to split rail fences, everything you think of it, uh, that's Appalachian. And after going around through there for two hours, I whispered to Alex, I see nothing in here about black people. And Alex said, well, that's what you need to do then. You can't expect to you do it yourself. And so that, that, that helped me to really get started. And he was a wonderful man. And uh, uh, he, uh, he, he, he uh, inspired me to the extent that I needed to be inspired, inspired uh, to do this work because he was very uh, much captured by the culture of Berea College. He just thought that was one of the most wonderful places in the world. And he used to hire a helicopter to fly John Stevenson to different parts of the mountains so that John could be back home for supper that night. Uh, and he went and helped to recruit people. And he was a wonderful man. And I'll never forget uh, John Stevenson and his wife, Jane Ellen, whom I'm sure you know. know uh, we sat together at Alex's funeral in Henning, Tennessee uh, in uh, 1991. Uh, Alex was 70 when he died. Uh, and um, it, was, it was a wonderful relationship. And I think it's so significant that that beautiful 150-acre farm that he bought near the Museum of Appalachia is now the headquarters of the Children's Defense Fund. Uh, and so there are still things going on there about roots and about children and about, metaphorically, the future still happens in discussions there in Knoxville area. Tell the uh, story, if you will, uh, that you uh, write about about the birthday party. I think it's a birthday party for Maya Angelou. For Maya, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's amazing, amazing that he would be able to, to have a birthday party for her and even more amazing that you got to attend. Yeah, well, that, 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 was not, <laughs> that, that occasion was not unusual because when Alex did Roots that you mentioned, the miniseries in 1976, that was the bicentennial year and Alex had spent two or three years, five years prior, it took four years to make that film. And so the people who are so iconic and the, the movie stars, Lou Gossett, LeVar Burden, Maya Angelou, Oprah Winfrey, uh, uh, not uh, Denzel Washington, but similar names that you could tick off. Well, Alex knew all of them because he brought them together in the production of Roots. And those people got their start in Roots. If you go back and look at who was in Roots, some of them are now in their 80s. They were in their 30s then. They were on a rise. And Alex used to, you know, those folks would fly in private jets into Knoxville in Alcoa, and then they would be helicoptered up to Norris, where Alex's farm was, and land out there on the farm. And uh, Alex, by that time, had given me a key to the gate. Uh, so that my wife and my children, we would go down there sometime and stay for the weekend, and Alex would be in Australia somewhere. And I knew everybody that worked at the farm, and so they knew me. And so when they had this big party, Alex invited me, but he didn't tell Maya Angelou his guest, and all these big movie stars were there. And you couldn't get anywhere near there. It was like a uh, Kentucky-Tennessee football game at Commonwealth <laughs> Stadium, and you're trying to get down 
you know, Nicholasville Road or whatever it's called. It's, it was so bigger you, than that. It was bigger than that. Get, you couldn't get anywhere <laughs> near that farm. But not only did I have a key to the gate, I knew the perimeter of the place because Alex and I used to ride around back there just to look at stuff he'd never seen on a farm he owned. And so I went around back in my Azusa Trooper, drove across a creek, you know, the whole nine yards. And then I walked down to this hill and you could just see this kind of gone with the wind scene with all these famous people out there all dressed up and pretty up. And, and when they saw me coming across the field, it was literally like walking across the football field toward the stands. And everybody, I could feel like they're looking at me. And here come the security guards, you know, and they ran across there like I was coming in there to do something like a terrorist or something. <laughs> uh, you know, it was really crashing the party. And one of them got 20 feet was like, oh, it's Dr. Turner. Hey, we know who you are, man. And so by the time we got up to my adjutant, she had a scowl on her face like, how dare you draw the attention to my party? And Alex said, oh, that's my buddy. That's my buddy. Don't put him in jail. He's the most kind of. And, and so uh, that was my uh, five minutes in the sun, so to speak. But it was it was not the kind of spotlight I wanted because I did not mean to draw that kind of attention to myself. But uh, it was quite memorable to me. That's just one of the stories in uh, Dr. Bill Turner's uh, wonderful book, uh, Harlan Renaissance, uh, which we're discussing today on the podcast. And we're going to um, come back in just a few uh, next week with the uh, part two of that conversation. And we're going to talk about um, some really interesting things. Uh, I'm going to begin next week with a, a chapter called What's in a Name, um, which is hilarious. And a lot of people um, of a certain age will relate to that. Uh, and maybe uh, people of uh, another age should, uh, should adopt uh, some of those uh, nicknames that we'll talk about. We're going to talk about uh, his... Um, uh, University life uh, at uh, the University of Kentucky and other uh, institutions of higher learning and where he taught and uh, was uh, a leader. Uh, we're going to talk more about his hometown of Lynch and we're going to uh, talk about a, a chapter titled The Principle of the White School Became a Lifelong Friend. And we're going to hear about uh, when Bill went from an integrated um, uh, well, it was segregated, um, uh, the Lynch Colored School, to the uh, integrated uh, high school, the first white school he attended. We'll, we'll talk all about that next week. Uh, Bill, uh, we appreciate you being our guest, and we'll, uh, we'll uh, continue this conversation about Harlan Renaissance. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.